I love this time of year. I uh, hope that many of you do too. I just love the festive spirit and the time of, uh, we get to celebrate all of us together one thing and the birth of Christ. And we've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks that it began, uh, Jesus coming to us began a long time ago, it began before the foundation of the world. But there's something about Christmas that drives you back to uh, Jesus. And I just love the festiveness of it. I, I love watching my 18-year-old daughter just still giggly and, and, and giddy about Christmas. And she, she has been since she's been little. She was always the one who couldn't sleep at night. And, and she's still that way, even at 18 years old. She loves everything about Christmas. And, and I do, too. Um, I, I, I love the, everything that comes with this. I also love uh, what, what has begun to happen here. Uh, we're seeing that Christ is moving and he began a long time ago. He's on this relentless pursuit of us. And so with that being said, we know that God is going to come to the rescue again and again and again and again and again. And we're going to see it again today that he's coming to the rescue again. This Monday, or past Sunday, I, I received news that a, a friend um, that has been a friend of mine for, uh, for about 12 years, um, I met him at ball games. Uh, he, he came to watch his grandson play baseball. And um, I, I watched my son play baseball. And so we began to know this, this family. And as a result of getting to know them, we developed a good friendship with them. And over the past 10 to 12 years, uh, we've set at a lot of ball diamonds together. We've set at basketball games together and, and, and grew to love him and his, and his wife. And got news last um, Sunday that he had passed away. And so this Friday morning, I was able to... S- to stand at his um, gravesite and uh, bury him. But it wasn't a sad day because in this past year, as a result of this relationship with this man, uh, my wife and I and my son have been praying for many years uh, for them. And we knew that God had brought them into our, our lives for a purpose. There's a relationship connected to it. In this past year, he was diagnosed with cancer. And so as I stood there on Friday, I recalled an event within this past year when we were in the hospital with this family gathered with uh, their sons and uh, family, extended family, where this gentleman, Denny, gave his life to Jesus Christ. And so when I stood there Sunday or Friday, I reflected upon that, knowing that my friend Denny um, is in the presence of Christ and that God had come to his rescue and he had a personal relationship with him. Even though his remains were in a container there, his soul was with Christ. And we have that promise today for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus. That no matter what happens, whether death itself falls on our doorstep, we know that we have this promise in Jesus Christ. Anybody grateful for that today? Anybody grateful for that truth that we have? God is on a relentless pursuit of us. And I'm going to walk you through again today. I could take you through every page of the Bible and show you this pursuit show you this opposition, and show you this relentless spirit of God coming to us. So I want you to grab your Bibles today, and we're going to look at this relentless pursuit again and see where God comes to the rescue again. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up, and uh, ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. And turn to the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus. And look at chapter 3 of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. And when you find Exodus chapter 3, look for verse 7 and 8. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. We know that God will make a way. 
No matter where we find ourselves today, no matter what your life situation is, we're going to see and hopefully you'll walk away today. If God could do that, then surely he can do this for me and my situation. Anytime a situation seems hopeless with an individual, I always remind myself that with God all things are possible. And so as I've been running through the Bible over and over and over again, looking at him coming after us and he won't be stopped, I'm seeing this consistency in God. And then I say, I all these things that I have, if he did this, then surely he can do this for you. God's people are slaves now in Egypt, and they're not free. Pharaoh is ruling over them. So basically what it means, all God's people, the Israelites, are living in bondage, and whatever the, the, the Pharaoh tells them to do, they have to do. And it doesn't seem like God has rescued them from anything. Adam and Eve left, you know, left the garden, and then we looked last week at Noah, and they started a new generation of people, and we're back to the same place. God's people are oppressed because the enemy is opposing them, and now they're oppressed, and they're in Egypt, and it doesn't seem like God is alive, but it's a perfect setup for God to come through and rescue them again. Stand with me, and we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to look at, read verses 7 and 8. God is about to find a man to lead this mission, and his name is Moses. Look at Exodus chapter 3. Let's read verses 7 and 8 together. Ready, read. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Gigabites, the Jagabites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. So you can have a seat. Sometimes we get in all those bites, mosquito bites, just throw them all in there. The home of everybody. It's basically what they're saying here. Um, so God's people were... They were in oppression. They were opposed. And so God is about, he's, he's on this journey, and Christmas is still coming. Christmas hasn't happened yet. But he has to continually fight these battles for his people. And Satan is continually trying to stop Jesus from coming at Christmas. He's not certain when it'll take place or how it's going to take place. But he thinks if he can stop God's people, then People won't be saved, but God is on this journey of making a way for us to come through. So he tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, just go up to Pharaoh. Now, this was his plan. He came and spoke to Moses, he said, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to go to the dictator. I want you to go to, to Saddam Hussein. I want you to go to Obama's, Osama bin Laden. I want you to go there and say, hey, let us go. That's what God says. Can you imagine in today's world that happening? And so that was the plan. Go there to Pharaoh and just say, hey, let my people go. Now, that sounds like a great plan if you had like thousands of people behind you and you were, you were heavily armored uh, and, and armed. And it, it would seem like this would be a good plan. So he tells him to go and let his people go. Now, that should be easy for just go up and ask someone to do it and they should do it, right? You know that's not going to be the case because they're opposed. Satan doesn't want the rescue to take place. Seriously, think about this for a second. That was God's plan to Moses. I want you to go to the king and the dictator and tell him, you better let us go or God's going to beat you up. I mean, basically, that's the picture that's here. It took some guts, I think, for Moses even to follow through with this. So he goes knocking on the door. And he says, just, just so you know, you better let go of us or this will be the end of you. And now Pharaoh was ruling over them. And up to this time, he, the Bible says he was a slave driver over the, the Israelites. So he wasn't going to let go of anybody easily. 
Then it says this in chapter 3. Look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 19. Look what it says in verse 19. So we Exodus 3 and verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him, God said. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Then it says this in verse 21. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, the Israelites, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Then he says this. You've got to love this, ladies. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in the house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters so that you will plunder the Egyptians. So not only is God telling him that he's going to rescue them, and what he's going to do he's going to, is his hand is going to compel, his hand's going to lead the way. But he says this, he, he tells the ladies, on your way out, stop by your rich neighbor's house and pick out a few pieces of jewelry. Now that's a pretty good plan, isn't it? Imagine, now think about your richest neighbor and you've seen their rings and their necklaces and on your way out, go by and say, hey, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. God's saying, not only do I want to send you away, but you're going to go out with valuable things so, and not only just gold and silver, but clothing for your children. So that's what, here's what it means. You go by the guy that's on the, the, the saddle here in Goshen. You tell him, hey, your job's over, buddy. That guy's standing there by the gold shop and say, hey, I'm taking all your gold. I mean, he sits out there and just, you know, what, what a job, by the way. Just seriously, I mean, just think about that. All day long, that guy just out there, you know, just trying to get people in. So you walk in, you tell him, your job's over, buddy. You lost your job because we're taking all your gold. On the way out of Goshen, by the way, on the way out of Goshen, we're going to do this. That was God's plan to rescue them. Why did he ask them to take gold and silver? Maybe for money? Maybe just as a reminder that every time they saw this silver trinket, every time they saw this gold, every time they had this necklace or ring on, it was a reminder. Guess what? God said he would do what he said he would do, and he did it. You know, I, I hope today that you're beginning to see that God is good on his word. And so the Israelites' plan was on your way out, Ladies, go to the door. Now, can you imagine all the women? Now, this was pretty cool. It wasn't the men. It was knocking on the door. And then all the Egyptian women would just stand there and say, here, here's my jewelry box. Take a pic. I mean, seriously, what a plan that this had. God had them leaving, and they were leaving loaded with ammunition and with very valuable things. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him to let his people go, and things are great. No way. I mean, seriously, he's opposed. Then it says this in chapter 5. Turn over to chapter 5. That was God's plan in verse 19. Chapter 5 and verse 19 says this. The Israelite foremen realized they were in trouble when they told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of, for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, these, these are the foremans. They realized that this plan would be difficult. So they're waiting on Moses and Aaron. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, you talk about moral support in the neighborhood. Seriously, the plan was the foremans, now they're gathering together. They're in the shop. They're out making bricks because they're, they're working for Pharaoh. And they're waiting. Moses said, here's the plan. And God promises to come through. And so as they're coming back to get home, there stands all the foremans. By the way, I hope God judges you. This plan just sucks. And not only that, 
I hope that, that when, when this takes place, that, that, that you will realize that you have caused us to be a stench, and this plan isn't going to work. You talk about moral support in the neighborhood? Not only is God going to have to get the hearts of Moses and Aaron, but he's got to get the hearts of these people who somehow have forgotten about all these stories we've already talked about, all these things that God had already did. And now they stand there and God wants to free them up, but there stands the people who say, that's not going to happen. <laughs> There's no way. You think, think that's going to happen? So now he has, he has his own people not willing to move. And you have not rescued your people at all, is what his people are saying to him. I don't like this plan. It's taking too long. And you would think after all these years that they would believe that God could come through. Just pause and consider that thought a second. You would think that you, Grace Community Church, you, me, Grace Community Church, would think after all these years, (laughs) after all these stories, after 66 books of collected information, story after story of God's faithfulness, that when something came upon our doorstep and in our lives, that you would think that we of all people would believe. You know why it's so difficult to believe? It's because we're opposed by an enemy who wants to put doubt in our minds. And so we have a choice to make. We will believe God or we won't believe God. You would think, seriously... Just sit down and read all the things that God has done that when something comes upon us, that we would not be just like the Israelites were here and wonder, well, God's not going to be able to do that, could he? Next comes some of the made-for-Hollywood plagues, more that, that, that only Hollywood itself could think of. And so now we have a picture of what God's going to do. He wants to get his people out. He wants to rescue them. And now he says, I'll get their attention. I'll show you what I will do. So he begins this. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, even though your foremans don't think it's going to happen, and even you got a bunch of whining and griping and complaining followers, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So God goes on, chapter 7, with this unbelievable Hollywood demonstration. Chapter 7, he begins what we know in the Old Testament as plagues. And the reason the plagues were there was to cause Pharaoh to let God's people go. So he goes on these plagues. Chapter 7, he begins with a plague in verse 14 of blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take your hand, the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go. So the waters all turn into blood. Every place that there was water flowing, there was blood. And so Moses said, hey, God said he's going to do this. You better let our people go. But you know what happens? He goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh begs him, hey, don't let this happen. Get rid of the blood. And so God moves, and so he thinks because Pharaoh is willing to back away from not holding on to the the Israelites, that he'll let him go. But then that that plague comes, and Pharaoh still holds him. Next plague, look at chapter 8 and verse 1. Seven days pass after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. So they may worship me. Verse 2. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. 
the Nile will teem with frogs. They will come into your palace. Imagine, into your bedroom, into your bed, into the houses of your officials, and on your people, and in your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you, and your people and all your officials. Now just picture this for a second. Everywhere you look, frogs, you would step on them and squash them. So, Moses goes. He said, if you don't let my people go, God says, I'm going to bring frogs. So he brings frogs all over the land. And you would think at this point that Pharaoh would relent, but he doesn't. And so you have this stench then. He doesn't. He doesn't let him go. Pharaoh still wants to hold him. And so you have all these dead frogs piled up all over the country. Next plague he brings, chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 and verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff. And strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the lands of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Once again, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was what? What's the word? Hard. And he would not listen. So the gnats come and the... He doesn't relent again. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, everywhere an Egyptian walked, there was gnats. And everywhere an Egyptian lives, there, was, there were frogs in their ovens. And everywhere an Egyptian went, the, blood, the water was bloody. But every place an Israelite went, they didn't deal with gnats. They didn't deal with frogs because God was protecting them. Now think about this for a second. While all this is going on, the Israelites are firsthand observers. They're looking at all this. And you would think by now, Wow, our God can do what he said he can do. You would think that there would be this faith community that was standing up and saying, look what our God is doing. Look what happens next after gnats. Look at chapter 8 and verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh as he goes to water, to the water and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may worship me. If you do not Let my people go. I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and on your people and into your houses. The houses of Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. I love verse 22. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. Woo! Where my people live, no swarms of flies will be there. Now, stop and pause for a second and just think how difficult it is when you just have one fly that's buzzing around. You ever had that one just nagging fly? You're and you're trying to get something done and it just continues to, to pester you. The land was full of flies everywhere except where the Israelites were at. They don't, Pharaoh doesn't let them go. Then it says this in chapter 9. So God moves on. He shows an, an, another, he pulls his hand again. Chapter 9 and verse 7, he puts a plague on the livestock. All the animals will die. So the animals die. In verse 7, it says this, Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let his people go. Imagine farmers looking out across their fields. Every animal, every livestock was dead. The, The fence right next to where the Egyptians was, cattle were grazing and healthy as can be. You would think, seriously, at some point that God's people would say, wow, look what our God can do. And you would think at some point Pharaoh would say, wow, he's an incredible God. But he was opposed. Read on. His people didn't want to let him go. Chapter 9 in verse 
Uh, verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air, into the, in, in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land. And festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Even his own people are loaded with boils, just festering one. I mean, if you to touch, it would be painful. And yet Pharaoh still wouldn't let him go. And meanwhile, every Israelite, every person of God, no boils. Their faith should be loaded. Their faith should be somewhere up here overflowing because God is doing what he said he would do. So it doesn't stop there. They don't let him go. So God says, I'll bring, I'll bring a plague of hail onto them. So he, he sends this hail. And then in chapter 9, in verse 34, it says this. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, God put an end to it. He sent again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. And he would not let the Israelites go. Just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then he brings locusts. Then he brings darkness on the land. And then finally, he says, I'll get their attention. God's final picture. He wants to get their attention because he wants to rescue his people. And he wants Pharaoh to know that he's in charge. Chapter 11, he decides where we get the Old Testament term Passover. And so God says, I am going to kill the firstborn son in every home. Except the Israelites' home. If they put a blood sacrifice over the doorframe of their home. So they went out and they took an unblemished animal. And they took the blood from this animal. Not one Egyptian would do this because they weren't worshiping God. And they took blood and laid it across the doorframes of their homes. And so this plague came over the land that every firstborn son would die. And then it says this in chapter 11, verse 6. Look what it says. Chapter 11 and verse 6. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. That's quite a statement, by the way. There will never be wailing like this again. And the wailing is because every Egyptian father and every Egyptian mother woke up. And if the, the oldest son in the house, they went and looked for him, dead, 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 dead. Everywhere they looked. The oldest son. Now stop and think. Think about your oldest son right now. Imagine waking up. He's home for Christmas. Maybe he's a college student. He's home for Christmas. And this plague goes over the land. And you wake up, he's dead. Wouldn't you begin to wonder, maybe this God is strong and big? Imagine your, your son, your firstborn, dead. And then imagine your neighbor's house, where the Israelites were living. They were living as slaves, yet their oldest son was alive. Imagine even the Egyptians themselves saying, Pharaoh, would you quit it? Let these people go. And then Pharaoh's son himself, oldest son, dies. But God promises the Israelites, even in the midst of this, look what he says in verse 7. This is kind of like a little sidebar. He said, there'll be loud wailing in Egypt. But in verse 7, he says this. But among the Israelites, not a what, will what? At any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt 
and Israel, between God's people and Satan's people. Now, that's pretty impressive. The Lord will make a distinction between Egypt, and he still does to this day. And he says, not only will the firstborn be dead, but not even a dog will bark at the house of an Israelite. In other words, dogs will be barking everywhere because there's panic. There's, there's people crying and screaming. And there's death. Yet the dogs would walk by the Israelites' house and come out of the Israelites' house, and not one dog would bark. In other words, they would say, because God has protected his own. So the plague takes place. Pharaoh finally turns and realizes he will do something about this. And so in chapter 12, look at verse 31. Chapter 12 and verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up. I love it. Just, he just says, look what he, his first word, up. Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you had requested. Then he says in verse 32, take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. <laughs> like he wants a little blessing before he leaves. And then verse 33, the Egyptians urge the people to hurry. Leave the country. I mean, just, can you just picture all these dead people, the land full of frogs, the land full of gnats. And, and so they're like, get these people out of here. And meanwhile, Satan is staying back and watching. This isn't good. What I want it to take place is for God's people to be stopped and not be rescued. And so even the neighbors themselves, hurry, get out of here, would you? You're a nuisance to us. Look what else he says here in chapter 12. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for clothing. Now, I find that just fascinating. So they go and knock on the doors. They're knocking on the doors. And on their way out, there's probably death was all over the homes, every home that they went to. And they knock on the door. And these Egyptians are like, get these people out. And hey, by the way, I'm with that piece of silver, that one piece of silver, that piece of gold. And hey, I like your son's clothes. They would fit Junior here. Can you have him give him to him? There's this picture of total domination, total victory. And by the way, Grace Community Church, the God that's doing this is the God that sees what you are facing today. And he says, if I can do this, and imagine what I can do for you. So you have these people leaving the country. And on their way out, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And they gave them what they asked for. So the guy on the saddle in Goshen had no longer had a job. That's what it's saying. So they plundered the Egyptians. And so they're leaving. Picture them leaving. They're like, look what we have. Gold, silver, clothing. Our sons are alive. God is who he said he was. And on the way out, they have this incredible moment. And Satan is standing back saying, I better put an end to this. I better put an end to this. I better put an end to this. For this group is going to grow and their face should be brimming at this point. God will do whatever it takes. They get out of Egypt. They leave Egypt. The Israelites leave. But Pharaoh is ticked off, by the way. And he wants to bring them back. 
It's a fascinating encounter here because if you haven't really studied this, Pharaoh already witnessed what God had already done back here. Yet when they began to leave, maybe he didn't like all the gold leaving. Maybe he didn't like all the silver. Maybe he just wanted some people who he could, who he, he could have work for him. And so he is ticked. Look at Exodus chapter 14. Look what happens next. This rescue must continue because the enemy still isn't ready to give up. Look at Exodus chapter 14 and verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials, they what their minds? What's it say? You know, when I really think about that, that blows my mind that he wants to change his mind after he had witnessed what God had already done. They, he changes his mind. Look on about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he and his chariot, so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. And look what it says in verse 7. It says this, he took how many of his best chariots with men with him? What's it say? 600 of the best chariots, along with other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. In other words, Pharaoh is saying, give me my 600 best men, and we're going to go back, and we're going to get these Israelites, and we're going to put them back where they need to be, and we're going to, we're going to take back what, what God has stolen from us. This is crazy. I can't believe we've done this. So at this point, you would really think, Israelites are leaving. They won. They're loaded with gold and silver. Egyptians have dead sons all back here, and the land is full of just nasty smell, and they're leaving. And now they can look to their leader, Moses, and Moses said, God will make a way. You would think at this moment that there would be confidence and it would be brimming in Israel. You would really think that would be true. Chapter 14, though. Look at chapter 14 and verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. Because the enemy's not done. He doesn't want them to be rescued. They were what? What's the word? Terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? (laughs) I just want to say. Verse 12. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Can you believe this, by the way? God has rescued him. He's packed their bank accounts full. They have already seen that what, all the things that he's done. And now they look up and they see the Egyptians again and they wonder, I wonder if God could stop them. Man, just, you talk about lack of faith. Where did that faith go? And so they're like, did you bring us out here because there weren't weren't enough graves back in Egypt in the desert? You could just dig a hole and throw us in. Did you bring us out here to die? We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt where we're oppressed and where it's dark and where we have to live under a dictator. That seems much better. What is wrong? Here's what's wrong. Satan is attacking them to make them believe that it's better back in Egypt than it is to standing up with God. He still does that today, by the way. So now Moses has this group of people who, who don't want to follow him. This is only days after the plagues. This is only days after they got the jewelry. This is only days after Pharaoh let him go. But then God says something through his servant that, in all seriousness, when I read that this week in the office, I actually stood up on top of my chair and said, yeah! Seriously, look what he says. 
Chapter 14. The people are complaining. So Moses realizes he needs to be a good leader here. Verse 13. Moses answered the people. Do not be a what? What's he said? Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. And then he says this line here that just, I'm serious. I stood up on my chair. I ran out in the hallway and I said, Ralph, you got to listen to this. Jeremiah, you got to listen to this. And it says this. He looks up at, the, up at the mountain and he says this. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. <laughs> that is awesome. You talk about, talk about an inspirational leader. He says, now look, you're all afraid. And they got jewelry hanging all over their arms. Their kids are all alive. And the stench of, of, of Egypt is, is over the land. And they're afraid. And then he says, hey, take a look. See those 600 Egyptians up there that are coming at you that you're afraid of? Take a good look because you're going to never see them again. <laughs> this is awesome. He knew that God would destroy them. And so he's trying to speak confidence into them. In other words, God's going to wipe them out. And they're like, yeah, right. And this is how he's going to do it. Then Moses says this. Look in verse 14. The Lord will what for you? And then he says this. You need only to be what? They didn't have to do anything. He said, the Lord will fight for you. All you have to be is. And then you can watch it all unfold. You know, when I read this, it juices me up because God obviously is going to come through here. How often we just let God fight for us? When that enemy's coming after us, God says, see that enemy have? Take a good look at that addiction. Take a good look at that sin habit. Take a good look at that evil. Take a good look at Satan. Because the Satan that you see today, there will be a day when you will never see him again. That's what he's saying. And by the way, that's true, by the way. There will be a day, Revelation tells us. Take a good look at Satan. Because there's going to be a day when he's thrown into the lake of fire and he will burn forever. Take a good look at that. Sometimes we need to take a good look. And Moses is saying, take a good look at your enemy because there will be a day when you will not see them again. I love that picture that's here. Okay, when we think about this as Christians, can we just stop the nonsense that says our God isn't big enough to overcome our enemy? We need some more men and women who will start standing up and saying, my God can do this even if no one will stand with me. It's a done deal. He's going to rescue us. He's coming and he can't be stopped. So they're fleeing away. The, it, the Egyptians are coming after them. 600 of the best trained men. You got the Israelites, half of them are afraid. And then it says this in chapter 14 and verse 20. They're coming after him. But in front of them is this large wall of water. And in chapter 14, in verse 20, it says, Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all day night. So God came and stood between Egypt, Egyptians, and the Israelites. And on one side it was dark. On the other side it was light. So that those that were in the light could keep moving and those that were in the dark couldn't see. God himself stood between evil 
And he said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a chance to get through this water. And those that are coming after you, it'll be nighttime. They can't move as easy. So literally, and if you were to walk during this time, there was this cloud that came and God was in the midst of it. And there was this line that separated darkness and light. Even that would be enough to just rattle your faith and put you in charge. So they see the sea, the Red Sea that's in front of them. And so they're probably panicking. How are we going to get through this water? Look at them. They're going to kill us. There's nowhere to go. There's no way out. We can't go anywhere but in the water and we'll die. Then it says this in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on the dry ground with the wall water on their right and on their left. Verse 23 The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. Verse 25, he made the wheels of their chariots come off, so they had difficult driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them just like he said he would. And against Egypt, verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And so you have this picture in verse 30. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Just like he said, take a look at them. You will never see them again. And so they have this picture And in verse 31, it says this, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The same God that did that can do that for us. Now let me just pause here for a second and talk about this Red Sea crossing. Hollywood makes this Red Sea crossing look like they just kind of just buzz through it. And then the Egyptians came. And then water. Scholars who are a lot brighter than me, and when I took some classes in graduate school, we, we studied the Dead sea, uh, Red Sea Crossing. And one of the things we found out, if you line up roughly a million people, and you put their animals with them, and you put all their possessions, all their gold, and all their clothing, and all, everything when they left Egypt, when they faced this wall, one professor at Grace tried to describe it this way. Picture, he said, now, we're in Winona Lake, Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana, is, was roughly 45 miles away. He said, now picture a million people with children, which make it a couple million. And then with, with their animals and livestock and their chariots and all their possession. He said, literally, if you took all four lanes of US 30 and you stretch it out because people didn't drive, travel in a path this wide. If you stretch it out, literally, the, it would be about a 35 to 40 mile stretch of people trying to cross the Red Sea. Have you ever thought about that for a second? It's not just like one group going across. It's millions of people crossing the Red Sea. And so how long would it take a group that weren't on motorcycles, weren't in vehicles to cross the Red Sea? How quickly could that take place? It's not going to happen in a moment. And some scholars who are a lot brighter than I am really believe that God held that water at bay for days and even months and maybe even one year it took for them to cross over that Red Sea, which makes it even more fascinating. Because God had the ability to stop water. And so eventually, they probably had to camp out in the midst of the Red Sea as a reminder on both sides and say, hey, come on through, come on through. And it was this long, 
arduous journey of faith. And their faith should have been refined because every day when they woke up, the waters on both sides were stopped. And every, else, every place else, the rivers were flowing and the Egyptians were coming. And as soon as the last Israelite, the last family that could barely last that long got through the Red Sea, Moses put down a staff and they were wiped out. Incredible. You would think after witnessing all that, you would think that the Israelites, they would never turn their back on God. When there was no way out, God made a way for them. See, when I read this, I just choose to say, if God could do that, then there's nothing that you and I face today that God can't help us to get through. Nothing. He is the only one that can rescue us. So they make it through the sea. They're free. There's dead Egyptians in the memory of God saying, the people that you see today, through Moses, he said, you will never see again. And by now, they spend years and years in the desert. So they're out in the desert. And they still have in the back of their mind this picture of the Red Sea crossing. They still have in the back of their mind this picture of the plagues that came. But something happens to human beings. It's as if we need a, our, cold, our hearts become cold and we need recharge. And they're out in the desert and they're wandering around and they begin to grumble. I mean, every day God would have quail that would just happen to, to be dropped by. And they would go grab a quail and they would eat. And he was dropping manna, these, these, these wafers from heaven. And it was like supernatural stuff was happening all around them. And they're out in the desert and they begin to whine and complain. Why did God send us out here, Moses? Why are we out here? We want to go back to Egypt. Because they took their eyes off of him and put him on themselves. They weren't happy. Some even said, why did you bring us out here? We were better off out in Egypt. It goes like this. Well, now that you're a Christian, it should be easy. Isn't that what we say? Well, now that you're a Christian and God did all this stuff, it should be easy for a Christian. You should not have any problems. In fact, when you used to follow me, you had a lot more stuff and things, and it was easier. But here's, and Satan, is, Satan likes to say that. It's like, when you followed me, it was easier. And somehow we believe this myth that somehow when we follow Christ, that it won't be difficult. Listen, it wouldn't be faith for us if we didn't have to trust somebody. So God is trying to build their faith. Yet soon as troubles come our way, many Christians, they just want to run away. So where's God at? Where's he at? I don't want to go back to Egypt. It was better back there to live under slavery and to have things and stuff instead of having you. But let's face it. Whoever said it was supposed to be easy as a Christ follower? No one. But when times do get tough, we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And he promises to rescue us now and he'll rescue us later. So God now gives them. They realize that they're out in this desert and they need some rules to live by because this place, this, they're all panicking and they're running out of, out of a direction. And so God says, all right, I'm going to give you some rules to live by while you're out in the desert turn to Exodus chapter 20. That's why we have the 10 commandments. Look at Exodus chapter 20. So God lays out these rules for them. Moses asks them if they love him. And if they keep these rules, if they think they can keep these rules. And look at Exodus chapter 20. Look at these rules as we know as the 10 commandments. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Look at verse 7. You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. 
Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Then he says that you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his maidservant or a manservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The reason that the Ten Commandments were originally written, they were written for the Israelites for rules to live by. Now, just stop and pause for a second. Do you think it was possible for this whining, griping group to keep these things? Do you think they never misused the name of God? Do you think they never griped with their neighbors? The purpose of the Ten Commandments, now listen, this is very important in this whole rescue plan, is to show us today, no matter how hard we try to keep the Ten Commandments, we can't do it ourselves. And God knew it. They couldn't keep them, and he wanted them to know that they could not rescue themselves. The only way to get to God, he was saying, is by keeping these Ten Commandments. He said, if you keep these Ten Commandments, then you have direct access to God, and you can meet me where I am. And the reality is this. He proved to them that no one could keep the Ten Commandments. No one could live by these rules. Only one person could keep the rules, and his name's Jesus Christ. So the Ten Commandments are a reminder to us that no one can keep the rules. When the Israelites had them, God says, I just need to remind this group, this is a tough group, that they can't save themselves, that they need someone to save them. So he gave them these rules to live by, and these same rules that we're supposed to live by, we can't keep them. And God is saying the only way to keep these, and the only person to keep them, his name's Jesus Christ, and he's coming, and he wants to rescue you. So that you can get to God. And Christmas is the reminder of that. He's coming and he can't be stopped. But the problem is this. Some of you in this room refuse to be rescued. And your final resting place is far away from God in a place that we call hell. Because you're like many of the Israelites here who would rather go back to Egypt live with stuff and things that will one day end up thrown away and you would rather have something here that's temporary than something permanent with God. And God has been on this journey from the foundation of the world trying to show you and rescue you and saying, you need me. And Christmas, next week we're gonna see, he's here. And the reason he's here is because we can't, get to him by ourselves. It's only through him. Only God can save us. I hope by now you're beginning to see that our God is stronger, that our God is bigger, and it's impossible to stop him. And he's been on this journey since the beginning of time. And you could walk through the whole Bible. He wants to rescue us. And he will not be stopped because he's bigger, stronger, and and he's the healer. And if our God is forced, not even Pharaoh can stop him. God, give us a picture of that this week. Help us to throw in whatever we face and say, if God could do this, then he promises to do this for us. Help us, God, today to have a brighter picture of who you are and help us to see that no one can stop our God It's impossible to stop our God from rescuing us. Thank you, Jesus, for that promise in your word.
And may we be reminded of it even again this week that you are coming and you can't be stopped. In Jesus' name, amen.